let us go back in time. Let us go back to the 1930s and see what we can learn from that depression, how it may apply to our very own today. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, we're going to be talking about a great essay at Real Clear Markets by you. It's called Higher Prices Must Be Engineered to Restrain Dictators, and it was posted on April 30th, 2021. I'm going to read this opening paragraph, and then you tell us what exactly happened next. Even before he was elected president, it was said that Franklin Roosevelt was given a clear choice by one of his closest advisors, George F. Warren, was an economist who, like Irving Fisher, demanded a radical departure from tradition and orthodoxy in order to arrest the world slide into financial anarchy. No matter how dear and historically abetted, neither solvency nor even soundness might prevail in a world drowning in deflation. And then, Jeff, he told, what did Warren tell Roosevelt? One of the great lines, I've never heard this before. What did he tell him? He must choose between a rise in prices or a rise in dictators. Pretty stark uh, and simple, right? Yes. All right. Well, okay. And that was, then, you know, uh, obviously the connection was at the time, this was 1932, hmm. and, you know, things were the worst they probably have ever been in American history. And it was just as bad throughout the rest of the world. And Warren could clearly see where this was going, as, as did Roosevelt and many others that look, you have an economic depression this bad, an economic collapse this bad, what's inevitably going to follow, it, historical examples all throughout, you know, all those things, is dictator, dictatorships and conflicts and all the other things, which is exactly what did happen. So we have to ask, well, wait a minute. There was a rise in prices in the 30s, but there was also the rise in dictators, and both coincided with the 1940s, which was the worst conflict in human history. So... All right, they were right about one thing, but maybe not right about the other. Let's go back before we get to the 1940s. Let's go to October 1932, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am very surprised to learn that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was an austerity hawk candidate. I, I mean, he is the epitome. He is the standard bearer of the Democratic Party spend like, there's no tomorrow for the people that want to do that on the Democratic Party. Let me read uh, part of his speech in October 1932. If the nation is living within its income, its credit is good. If in some crisis it lives beyond its income for a year or two, it can usually borrow temporarily at reasonable rates. But, my friends, if, like a spendthrift, it throws discretion to the winds and is willing to make no sacrifice at all in spending. If it extends its taxing to the limit of the people's power to pay and continue to pile up deficits, then it is on the road to bankruptcy. Franklin Roosevelt? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, a, there's not only a misconception about that. There's also, that was not just a campaign. Pro I mean, this was not just, hey, I'm going to say whatever I need to say to get elected. He maintained that attitude throughout his entire time, hmm. which does, I mean, you think, well, how can that possibly be? The guy had the yeah. biggest deficits proportion in history. And what he, you know, for example, and I think it was the 1936 or 1937 budget statement, what, what I didn't include it in the article. What he said was, look, we are running a balanced budget here, except for emergency programs. 
So if you take away all the emergency stuff, our books balance. We are, our expenditures match our income, where it doesn't match is the fact that we're in a depression and we have to do all of this stuff. And I did include the quote that he had in Pittsburgh in 36, where he said, look, it's a crime against humanity to sit idle and try to run a balanced budget, including these emergency items, given the, the, uh, the absolute devastated state of the economy and the markets and the entire world at that point. So in terms of Roosevelt's view, what he would tell you, and what he did say on many occasions was, look, we try to balance our budgets, and we do. It's just that we have this enormous emergency that demands an enormous fiscal response to it. Which, again, this, this should start to sound very familiar. <laughs> That's right. And so let's see, from 1932 to 1936, the, the fiscal deficit went from, let's see, a negative 2.7 billion, then 2.6, 3.6, 2.8, 4.3 all net de deficits. And yeah, back the, when a billion was a, a, an enormous sum. Today it sounds like a rounding error, but back then, billion was trillion. And the uh, the business community, they weren't too thrilled about it. I don't know how polling worked back then, but I, this was very interesting to get a sense. Now we're we're moving four years forward, so we're now in, in October 1936, and Roosevelt wants to get a sense of well, what does the business community think of all this deficit spending? They sent out letters to some 12,000 uh, newspaper editorialists to kind of get their sense of what's happening in your locale and and what did the community tell roosevelt the business community too much debt way too much debt <laughs> knock it off they said look De if we want to restore business confidence stop spending money and it was a uniform i mean the, i think the percentage was something like 89 percent agreed that there was mm -hmm. way too much fiscal debt i mean it was just a problem yeah, and then we have to reconcile that with the fact that the 1936 election was one of the most lopsided in history, hmm. in Roosevelt's favor. Hmm. It wasn't. I mean, it was. It may have been. The, I don't know for sure. I'm not. A, you know, don't know the presidential election, but I think it may have been, if not the most lopsided, biggest landslide. It was. It was definitely top one, two, or three. So, they didn't like the debt, didn't like the deficits, but gave Roosevelt the benefit of the doubt because. As Roosevelt said, what else are we going to do? What other alternatives do we have? Let me read that. Now we're on October 1936. We're back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's almost like four years to the day, the same location. What? Here's what he says. Now as president, to balance our budget in 1933 or 34 or 35 would have been a crime against the American people. To do so, we should either have had to make a capital levy that would have been confiscatory, or we should have set our face against human suffering with callous indifference. When Americans suffered, we refused to pass by on the other side. Humanity came first. Jeff. Yeah, I love how he says confiscatory through taxes when, when he was actually confiscatory through the dollar. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I think that's really the point I wanted to make was that, look, there was no, there was really not that in terms of what they were thinking, there was no other choice. Either you're going to confiscate gold or you're going to confiscate through taxes. And what, what Warren and Fisher and John Maynard Keynes, who wrote to Roosevelt several times, said was you can't confiscate through taxes because that will be even more deflationary. 
You, maybe you don't want to run excessive budgets because it's not in your nature, but that's your only option. You got to do it because as Roosevelt also said, we were the only ones who could spend at that time. I am Jeff. So yes, you're mentioning gold. Help me now segue because you've caught me at a, I'm trying to figure out how to segue to the next section here. Uh, let's see. We could talk about gold. You just talked about Fisher. Uh, here, let me read a quote then and let's see if you can take it from there. How can we, we can go from mid-1930s America to present day. Here, let's use this quote here. Who cared about the soundness of gold money for the wealthy banker when so many millions, tens of millions remained out of work with no sight, no relief in sight? Sounds like today, pretty much. Yeah, that's the point that Roosevelt eventually, what eventually swayed him to confiscatory monetary and dollar policy was that, look, everybody who said you go off the gold standard will lead to ruin. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? It's 1932. We're already ruined. How much more ruin can ruin become? We need to do something radical. And at that time, the government deficits and what came to be known as Keynesianism was a radical solution. And the idea was to try to, as Irving Fisher called it, reflation. Let's get things moving back in the right direction so that that recovery would then follow. And that starts with inflationary policies of you know, fiscal expanding, uh, monetary. The monetary stuff came in much later, but that was the idea. Let's get prices moving in the right direction. We'll get the economy moving in the right direction. We'll, we'll, we'll hire the government. We'll hire a bunch of people. Sounds like MMT. We'll hire a bunch of people, even though they're out of work. We'll have them do stuff. We don't care what it is as long as they're getting a paycheck. All of these aggregate demand type of policies that Roosevelt said, well, why, why not try this stuff? Because we're already ruined to begin with. And the idea was that would lead to the rise in prices, therefore avoiding the dictators. And as we know, the prices did rise, but so did the dictators. And, and, and we actually look back at it, and even Roosevelt admitted this several times in the, in the later 30s, especially after the 37-38 debacle, which was another mismanaged depression within a depression. What they, what they realized was that, yes, we got prices moving in the right direction, but a rebound is not a recovery. Reflation by itself is not sufficient. Maybe all this deficit spending, yeah, it, maybe it helped jobs saved, quote unquote, but it sure didn't bring about recovery and it left the U.S. in a much worse situation than it had been in pre pre previous to the collapse. So, yes, don't want to don't want to don't want to do uh, huge deficits, but that's what we're going to do because we don't know what else to do since we're already deep in the hole to begin with. But that's not the same thing as saying we know how to get out of it. All they're saying is we know we're in it. Well, at least they knew they were in it. I don't believe our president, uh, not present, but our present leaders know that they're in it. And uh, I'm following along Miss Kelton's uh, tweets, and she is just slapping her head like this, that they are just trying to go about it doing the same old, same old. And, you know, she has her point of view of how she wants to do it, but I'm in agreement with her that they should try something radically new. Anyway, so... No, and that's that's really what MMT is. It's really it's 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 a it's a mirror image of what we're talking about. They see the same problems and come to completely different uh, ideas about what should be the solution to it. 
I think the answer, both in the 1930s as well as the uh, current age, is that we need to understand what actually happened before we start trying to think we're going to get our way. We're going to we're going to come up with solutions to get our way out of it. If you don't understand where the hole came from in the first place, how do you really know you can be, you're able to get out of it? And the lesson of the 1930s was, no matter how radical you become, it doesn't necessarily mean radical does not necessarily equate to successful. Let's make it. Let's get back to the monetary side. During this whole time, the government was spending like never before. Deficits were off the charts. But as Roosevelt said, it was the only game in town. And the bond market, the bond vigilantes, knew that. So they didn't go after the government. They wanted to fund the safest, most secure entity possible, the most liquid. And that's why we saw falling rates throughout that whole time period. You make that point here. Falling rates. Yeah, and that was a pervasive belief. We talked about it in an early episode. Howard Buffett, Warren Buffett's father, a congressman from Nebraska, was a famous gold bug and said, look, these deficits are going to ruin us. And yet, in actual fact, up until that point, it was the opposite. The more the government's, government issued in debt, the more the banking system was only too happy to buy it at rising, increasing prices, not increasing yields. It was the opposite. And so what we see here again is that the point throughout history, the deflation comes first. It comes before any sense of, of proportion of propriety about the government's deficit. If we're in a deflationary period, the government can get away with doing these things, which is another problem with doing these things. Because they didn't work and the government could get away with doing it, they kept doing more. And it became almost a self-reinforcing lock, right? The worse it got or the less recovery there was, the more the government felt it needed to do, the more it contributed to the problem, the more the government would have to feel it could do. And then there was no bond vigilantes or no way to interrupt that process because the bonds, the bond market, the banking system was only too happy to buy more of the government's debt. So you get stuck in the situation where if you don't understand the situation, it seems like there's no possible way to get out of it. And that gives rise to all the extremes that come with it. In the 1930s, it wasn't just dictatorships. There were all sorts of other problems, too, including in the United States. There was socialism. labor strife. There's social. I mean, all of these things that happen because we don't understand the situation that we're in. And you, I love the way you always point this out, Emil is that the, the difference today, we're almost in a worse situation today is because nobody knows that we're even, we even have a problem. Yeah. Everybody think, oh, the economy is booming before COVID. It was, it was fantastic. Why would we even care about any of these things? Meanwhile, labor participation is at a rate that it was decades ago, even before 2020, no matter what the unemployment rate said. And oh, by the way, it doesn't matter how reckless the government is, for some reason, we can't seem to understand, despite everybody saying there's too many treasuries, the banking system, the monetary system only wants to buy treasuries, which it tells you everything you need to know. But if you don't know how to interpret that signal, you think the economy's booming and the government deficits are actually really helpful and all these other things, you can't pinpoint what's really wrong. And if you can't pinpoint what's really wrong, like the 1930s leading to the 40s, you'll never be able to truly get out of it. So the rise in prices by itself was was a necessary but it was no wasn't a sufficient condition to forestall the rise of the dictators because prices did rise it just didn't mean recovery there's a couple more quotes from this paper that i want to get to and we'll just talk around them the first one here is from milton friedman and you tell us what this is in reference to 
With respect to discount policy, the Federal Reserve was misled by the tendency present recurrently throughout its history before and since to put major emphasis on the absolute level of the discount rate rather than on its relation to other market rates. Low rates are stimulus. <laughs> the Fed thought they were, yes, everything the was good or Friedman's correct. Friedman's monetary critique, which came in the 1960s after much, much later, what he said was that the Federal Reserve mistakenly had pursued tight money policy, believing that they were pursuing a easy money policy because interest rates ended up low and lower. They also said that, well, you know, we don't see much borrowing at the discount window for reasons that had nothing to do with it. So they thought, well, the demand for money must be low. They mistook low interest rates for accommodative monetary policy. Boy, geez, doesn't this sound familiar? And they made a major mistake of allowing monetary deflation not just to develop, become so extreme it led to the catastrophe of the great depression and what he also said was that back then as then as the 1960s as well as today there's this tendency to associate low interest rates as something positive as well as a positive result from the federal reserve's policies that was a mistake in the 30s low interest rates were not stimulus and the interest rates were not low because of the federal reserve they were low because the federal reserve wasn't doing its job and that's also applicable. And because of that, as we just said, because because the monetary situation is so desperate, the, the banking system, the financial system quite naturally demands the safest and most liquid instruments because it's – I mean it makes sense. If the, if the monetary environment is less than forthright and less than plentiful, why wouldn't you have to pay attention to safety and liquidity concerns above everything else, including the government's uh, penchant for just borrowing like a drunken sailor? I think the analogy to present day is just perfectly clear to our audience. So let me read one last quote here from the 1930s. Jeff, I, we've talked about it already, but it's such a good quote. I wanted to share it with the audience. And it's by George F. Warren in October 1936. The same George Warren as had advised uh, FDR to go off the dollar standard, the gold standard, years earlier. A society based on individual enterprise is so efficient in production that it brings enormous advances in the well-being of the common man. Recent world experience has shown that the worst enemy of such a society is instability in the value of money. We have learned by hard experience that failure to control the value of money leads to innumerable foolish efforts to control everything else and often culminates in dictatorships beautiful jeff do you have any final thoughts on on this essay which i i noted no, I here one of your best be pieces final, yeah that should be the final thought because that was something spoken in the 1930s by a guy who advised roosevelt to go off the monetary standard and here he was saying which i believe is a universal or should be appreciated as a universal truth which is monetary instability leads to everything wrong all right well let's move on to part two of the episode then Ladies and gentlemen, whenever we do these shows, I read all of Jeff's work, then I pick out a few that I think we should do, and then we go over. And Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, this time, this week, said we're doing this one. So he's excited. He can't wait to share with you something about the system open market account. Jeff, how can you be so excited about the system open market account? We're going to be talking about a post on May 3rd at Alhambra Investment, and the title is Soma's been talking for over a year, 
Jay's got some explaining to do. Bills. Yeah, how can we be excited about something like that? Well, it's not really excitement as it is. Here we have more than a year's worth of data. We have a year's worth of Federal Reserve policy in action, and nobody talks about it. Nobody says anything about this. And we've talked about it before. We've kind of we've kind of talked around the edges of it, how Treasury bills, collateral, Federal Reserve, QE, all that stuff, especially the not QE, QE5, how that relates to it. But here we have whole i think it's not what is it now 14 and a half months where the federal reserve is basically saying yeah we kind of screwed this up and this and as we were saying this is not a small thing to have screwed up so yeah. jay does have some explaining to do even though he would prefer that nobody know about any of these things no no i've previously said that i think it rises to the level of the legal standard of negligence and malpractice we'll get to it let's go back in time now system open market account you start out the article by taking us back to the very beginning to give us a reason why it's even there and then another reason the open market operations so just i don't know what a system open market account is someone else probably doesn't either jeff what what is it when did it come to be it's where it's essentially the the 12 federal reserve branches portfolios and the reason that it came about was that when the federal reserve was first brought up as an idea Remember, it was not the first central bank in the U.S. history. It was actually the third. And the American people did not like central banks, by and large. And so the last one had been banished, or its charter wasn't renewed in, back in 1836, I believe. So for 75 years, the, the American system, which experienced re relatively awesome growth and innovation, all these good things, Incredible without a central growth. bank, suddenly was being faced with the idea that it needed a central bank. Well, first of all, they didn't call it that. That's why it's called the Federal Reserve even though every other central bank around the world is much more honest about its name. And secondly, what Congress demanded was, look, we know the central bank is not gonna be popular, but we think we need it because JP Morgan said so. Therefore, it needs to support itself. The taxpayers are not gonna stand for, you know, another bloated bureaucracy that becomes, uh, you know, another, another mouth sucking on the taxpayer teat. So it needs to earn its own way, its own operations. And there are costs to, you know, there's people have salaries. There's all sorts of infra, you know, infrastructure that needs to be done and things like that. And the way you, the only way a central bank can earn money is by investing in securities, right? So it becomes an investable thing for, for these earned assets that the Fed needs, at least originally, in order to pay its own bills. And of course, that led to the accidental discovery that when the Fed buys bonds in order to pay its own bills, it seems to have an effect on the commercial banks and their behavior. And that's what became known as open market operations, which are almost when the Federal Reserve buys bonds from the banking system, it gives them bank reserves in, in, the, uh, in the offsetting transaction, the asset swap. What happens is the commercial banking system back then said, oh, I've got reserves. I don't have this bond. Let's, let's, let's engage in portfolio effects. I'm going to go out and buy. I'm going to do more risky stuff. So in the early days of the Federal Reserve, because of this earning asset requirement, the Federal Reserve, the, the entire system realized that they could affect, at least in the early days, bank behavior by engaging in this kind of operation. So that by the early 19, middle 1920s, it became more formalized in a, in a part of monetary policy. You had first the precursors of the Federal Open Market Committee, which I forget the name of it, but then the Federal Open Market Committee, which I believe was reconstituted in 1923 or 24. And then this, what was called scissors effect, became an opera, or an, an, an element of, of, of standard monetary policy practice. 
Now let us fast forward to uh, present day. And I was actually listening to a podcast, uh, Mr. Uh, George Gammon's podcast, who's had some great shows lately. The one with Steve Keen, fantastic. Do your audience listen to that one? And then the one with Brent Johnson, fantastic. And they were talking about monetizing the debt in Japan was the example. And, I th and Europe as well. And Brent brought up the United States. And we're going to get to that right now. But Jeff, what is monetizing the debt? I think it means where... The U.S. Treasury says, I need to borrow some money, and the Federal Reserve says, okay, well, we'll give you some money. And it's like taking money from one pocket to the other, and then not actually, you don't actually have to ever pay it back. And so the, the concern is, well, this is going to be destroying the currency and the confidence in the currency. Let us start before the financial crisis. Did I get the monetizing the debt idea right? And then where was the Federal Reserve before the crisis? How much U.S. government debt did it have on its books that the government would, you could theoretically say, never kind of have to pay back or anything like that? Yeah, I think most people, when they hear the word monetizing, that's pretty much, I mean, there might be some arguments about specific details, and but it's not really, I mean, general idea is the government doesn't actually sell its debt it just it has a central bank print currency and then everything is done out of everything is is, is just done out of thin air intergovernment okay. yeah exactly okay. it's, it's it's sort of a fiction that the that you know they go through the 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 charade in order to maintain some semblance of reasonable whatever reasonable standards you know quantitative easing has been has been um, accused of being monetizing the debt several times even though that's you know in some sense maybe that's true but if you look at the ui the united states the federal reserve it's soma holdings before 2008 i think i went back to 2003 yes remember 2003 bush deficits there was complaints about uh, government spending back then and i think people would be shocked to learn that the soma holdings back then were more than 600 billion with a b back when 600 billion meant a lot and in fact, even after the Bush deficits of the early, his first term, the, the total U.S. public debt outstanding, and I know this doesn't include li other liabilities, but public debt outstanding was a little bit over $6 trillion. So in fact, the Federal Reserve SOMA portfolios held about 10% of outstanding public debt in 2003. And there were no claims of monetizing. There were no yeah. shouts about all of this stuff. And the reason was because back then, People understood that the Federal Reserve has SOMA holdings. That's part of monetary policy. It's not has nothing to do with the debt. It has to do with their charade of trying to pretend they control the banking system, influence its behavior, open market operations, and those types of things. And it, it, it only became an issue under quantitative easing, even though quantitative easing is nothing more than a form of open market operation. The, mo the, the open market operations before 2008, before QE, were temporary open market operations. Whereas those under quantitative easing become permanent POMOs, permanent open market operations. And really all it does, it says is we're buying more bonds and creating more bank reserves. Yeah, we're, trying to, we're trying to influence bank behavior in a more, in a different kind of way. We're gonna be getting to the part that you're excited about with the SOMA portfolio, but let's just set the scene a little bit more with the size of the SOMA portfolio through each of the QEs. Jeff, I was surprised to learn that QE1 did not detonate that 10% number. We had to wait a little bit before the SOMA, before 
the Fed was monetizing even more than it was in 2003. Well, you know, hey, the, the fiscal hawks are going to they're going to disagree with you there. The reason the Federal Reserve's holdings seem to decline, they didn't decline, they, they actually increased, but the federal government's debt was increasing much faster than the Federal Reserve was buying. Now, what we would say is that, yeah, well, that's true, and interest rates were by and large low and falling. So even though the Fed didn't buy with everything that the government was selling, the market was desperate for the stuff, and they, they definitely did want that. So, yeah. In QE1, the proportion of the Fed's SOMA holdings as, as a percentage of the overall public debt fell, and it wasn't until later when the government stopped spending as much as it did, its deficits came back down, although they never did normalize, to the pre-crisis era, while the Federal Reserve did more quantitative easing because neither of those things were actually working in the way they were intended. And by the end of the fourth QE, which was in 2014. 2013. Uh, 2013, we were at 13.6%. Oh, no, you're right. I'm sorry. They, they tapered in 2013, and they were terminated in December of 2014. You were correct. 13.6%. That's how high the uh, proportion got. Okay, Jeff, help me segue now from monetizing the debt to really the meat of it, which is we're going to be talking about bills in October 9, 2019. Well, the, the idea is the other part of monetizing the debt has to be the money printing, right? Because that's what you're doing. You're printing currency in order to, for the government to spend freely without any constraint. But what if you're not actually printing currency? And that's really the part that we need to so, the purpose from the Federal Reserve's perspective has nothing to do with the Treasury Department's deficits. What, what Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen and Jay Powell will tell you is that we need to increase the level of bank reserves because that's a signal to the, to the, to the uh, financial community, to the, to the real economy participants, as we talked about in an early show, what does quantitative easing actually does? It doesn't actually print any money. It just raises the level of bank reserves as, an, as the other side of a transaction, which is nothing more than an asset swap. And an asset swap is the central bank goes to a, a commercial bank and says, I want to buy that government bond or MBS security from you, and I'm going to give you bank reserves in between. And the idea is, well, okay, that should help. Maybe people think that's a good thing. Maybe they think that's accommodative monetary policy, but it's not, it's not really money printing. Commercial banks know that. So... Even if it's not money printing, maybe there's no downside. At least they're doing something. It's a signal to the economy. Maybe it doesn't hurt. Except we have to appreciate that this asset swap has two sides. And the other side, the one side is bank reserves go up. And the other side is, well, now there's fewer bonds available for the commercial banking system. And maybe that's a problem. And it's not immediately apparent why that would be, because it sounds like we're just swapping assets out of a portfolio. But in reality, the way the modern system has worked for 50, 60, 70 years now, it's not so simple. Assets aren't just assets, they have other purposes. As I say often, especially sovereign bonds, they're balance sheet tools and very, very valuable ones at certain times. And so you, you remove treasuries from the commercial banking system and give them bank reserves they can't really use, except to buy more treasuries from the, directly from the government. They don't want the treasuries, they want the treasuries to be able to use in this massive, amorphous, ephemeral collateral pool for repo and derivative transactions that span the entire world. So it may be that quantitative easing that raises the level of bank reserves, but lowers the level of bonds available to the banking system harms more than it helps. Jeff, it's, there are some people out there that are conspiratorial with the Federal Reserve. They say that the 
Members of the FOMC are seven feet tall and drink blood and can't be killed. You never say that, with one exception. And you didn't really say it either, but I remember reading this article specifically because of this sentence here. It's hard not to think sometimes that maybe the conspiracy theorists are onto something here. When you step back and you look at what they are doing, there are moments when you truly wonder if the authorities are actually trying to crash the system, at least to make a bad situation that much worse. And Jeff, you wrote that in October 2019. But unfortunately, the people that run the show, they don't listen to you. Tell yeah. the what 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 happened it really is if you were trying to do something if you were trying to if you were trying to do whatever you could to harm the system what would you have done differently than what jay powell did in that time period and i can't come up with a single thing other than to baby maybe to come out and admit <laughs> the truth but honest remember we had these repo rumble in in september of 2019 it was a big deal nobody could figure out what it was and jay powell's solution wasn't really a solution it was how do we get calm back into the into the so that the Wall Street Journal isn't talking about repo anymore. Well, they did what they always do. They did, they raised the level of bank reserves. Now they called it not quantitative easing because they wanted to distinguish between an easing policy and a technical, you know, uh, you know, a certain, a portfolio kind of a, 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 a maneuver. It wasn't meant to be stimulus, at least that's what Powell was trying to get across. And because it wasn't meant to be stimulus, he thought, well, how do we distinguish this from other quantitative easing? Well, the genius idea he came up with was we won't buy treasury notes and bonds because the public thinks if we buy right, if we buy long term treasuries, that's stimulus, which is a ridiculous idea, but you know, they're it's, rationalizing it's... at this point. So if we only buy treasury bills, the public will realize this is a technical operation, not a stimulus operation. Whatever. That that was the justification. But in selecting only treasury bills to be buy to be bought for this, what really was QE five he was actually making the biggest possible mistake. He was removing not just collateral, but the best of the best of the best collateral. And that's why I wrote that at the time, like, look, this, this is gonna come back to bite you, Jay. You're doing the exact wrong thing. And this is October, 2019, when we just had a dress rehearsal in September of 2019 that said, if the going gets rough, the dealers are gonna run for the exits. So they were already saying, any kind of shock, the system's fragile. And here you are going to make the system even more fragile at the worst possible time. Now, yes, it's true. Nobody could have anticipated COVID in October 2019, but that's not the point. The point was any shock, any shock would have propelled the system into what we saw in March of 2020. It didn't matter that it was COVID. It didn't matter that, yes, COVID was an enormous shock. We were going to have problems either way. If you knew that you were in a depression, you would be expecting shocks. If you knew you were in the fourth turning, you knew that the shocks and the sparks that are going to come are going to have systemic consequences. And here you wrote, the whole bond market screams systemic collateral shortage. And these guys think, well, let's fix it by removing the best collateral from circulation can anyone in such a position really be that obtuse it has to be on purpose right that was again october 2019 let's fast yeah, forward that, you know that's that's tongue-in-cheek we don't really mean that they, they did this on purpose what we're meaning is that their worldview is so backward so ancient and so out of date they don't know what they're doing. There is, we often, I often say it's a 1960s view of the 1930s, and that's really how they are. They're, we, we raise the level of bank reserves and everything is hunky-dory. 
Well, bank reserves don't, aren't, don't mean the same thing to the modern wholesale system that they might have meant in 1929 and 1930. So raising the level of bank reserves, which may not have been that effective back then, has even less impact today. So what we're saying is, no, we don't believe that they're, they're trying to crash the system. What we believe is they're so incompetent, they're so behind the times, that they wouldn't know the difference. Jeff. And they didn't. Fr so from September until a certain week, they kept buying bills, kept pulling exclusively bills bills. out, yep. exclusively bills, sending reserves into the banking system to help the banking system. Jeff, what week did somebody print out that October 19th blog post of yours and place it in front of Jay Powell and on his desk. What week was it when they finally got the message? They finally got the message the week of March 18th, which should ring a bell to a lot of people because that was the absolute worst parts of what we call GFC2 because it was a global financial, it was global liquidations and fire sales in every market, including treasuries. And so what happened on March 18th, it got so bad that the treasury market started to blow up and it didn't just blow up though. It blew up in a very specific way that they actually talked about a couple weeks later and wrote about in the minutes of their FOMC meeting, which said that the, even the on the run or the off the run market became illiquid and shepherd and herded everybody into on the run. And on the run means the most liquid treasury instruments, which includes every single one of the treasury bills. So what they were saying without knowing what they were saying and not knowing what the consequences or the implications of what they were seeing was that exactly as I had said, they had stripped the, the, the one thing that the system would need most in an emergency from use. And it created this massive, it, it didn't create the bottleneck, it made the, bottle, the bottleneck that much worse. They contributed in all the wrong ways to it going to the, to the financial crisis in March 2020, going even worse than it ever needed to be. And they admitted it, but not explicitly. They admitted it by, from that point forward, what did they do? They stopped Nothing. buying bills. Right. Now they've reinvested, they've reinvested the proceeds of, of maturing bills. But what you see is since the week of March 18th and then the March 25th, they bought a little bit more in bills the next week of March 25th. But going back to March 25th of, of 2020, it's been the exact same balance ever since. So now for more than a year, the Federal Reserve has not touched the bill market through its quantitative easing, even though it has bought trillions in other types of U.S. Treasury assets. You would think that if if bank reserves and this Treasury bill thing didn't matter, they would say, well, we need to buy anything. We got to buy stuff because we got to raise the level of bankers for a couple trillion. We got to buy bills, too. And oh, by the way, what was the government selling off in April, May, June, July and August of 2020? Only Not bills, bonds and notes. They were all bills. So the Federal Reserve was staying the hell out of the bill market and doing so in, an, in such obvious fashion. The only conclusion that you can come to is that it was purposeful. They refrained from buying more bills because here's where Jay needs to explain. Say that last part again. Be, they won't explain. No, and he won't. But this is what the data says very clearly at that specific time. The Federal Come Reserve, on. even these guys, they realized that buying bills was doing something harmful. And not only did they realize it was doing something harmful, they stuck to that realization for the entire time since, which is now more than a year. Today, uh, or yesterday, Wednesday, 
the the bill numbers the the sum of holdings came out and again exact same number they do not want to touch the treasury bills other than reinvest the proceeds of what had been in there up until march of 2020 and this is what jay powell should be called i mean somebody should be asking the guy hey why aren't you touching treasury bills you seem to want to buy all the off the run bonds and notes out there but there's an obvious, clear connection to the fact that the Federal Reserve is not buying Treasury bills and didn't buy Treasury bills when the government was selling trillions of them. So you are telling us by your actions that this, this Treasury bill policy was something wrong. Not something wrong, but something so wrong that you just you won't even do anything, won't touch it, even though here we are a year and a month later. A couple of things. Wouldn't the right thing to do would be to now drain the soma of the bills and send them back out stop reinvesting so that you're not taking any more than necessary out and two i'm reminded of that uh, paper that the federal reserve researchers wrote in december of 2020 and i wonder if you know collateral is getting gaining prominence in the federal reserve discussions and they're realizing how important this the on the run the collateral is to the system just what do you think the second second part you know that i think is somewhat true and there may be a growing realization and there's a growing and it's tiny but it's a growing volume of of scholarship and evidence that suggests that's the case what we've been saying that quantitative easing strips the system of necessary collateral but that doesn't necessarily mean that monetary policy is going to reform itself overnight into incorporating that fact into the way it operates because it's you know this first of all this is a bureaucracy and second of all i don't think they realize the full implications of that because once you do that you say well collateral may be more important than bank reserves (laughs) as the paper said if you want more stability in the financial system shrink the fed's balance sheet they're nowhere near ready to appreciate the full weight of those implications nor are they ready to do anything about it so they may say well yeah there's something important in collateral but it's not going to be a primary consideration because they do things the way they do things and they don't really know how to do anything else. And it'll be a long time before we get to a position where they do appreciate the full length of collateral. And that's who knows what will happen in between. But to your first question about why don't they let the, the bills drain off, there's technical reasons why they want bills in the SOMA portfolio, including the reverse repo program, which we don't need to get into here because that's another tangent. But there's justifications that they could have for saying, well, we need to keep it at the same level, even if we don't go above, okay. which just still comes to the same conclusion, which is they say they know by their own actions. You can tell by their own actions, their own data. They know they screwed up big with the bills. Uh, what was I going to say? I've already forgotten. I thought it was going to be really good. Well, do we I think we've got all our final thoughts. Is there anything else that we wanted to say, Jeff? No, it's just, again, it's, you know, we're, we're in the process where this stuff is, the evidence is so overwhelming that it's hard to come to any other conclusion. But the problem with that is it takes, you know, it's hard to penetrate a bureaucracy. But more than that, hmm. as I said in the title of the of this piece, Jay Powell should be, uh, should be held to account here. Hmm. Somebody in the media should be knocking on his door saying, look, man, your own portfolio actions dictate that you did something wrong. Explain yourself, person. And uh, we all know that's never going to happen. Well, we know you've got some contacts in the media, and I'm sure there are some people in the media that watch and listen to this show. It could happen. Jeff, you know what I was thinking? Uh, it would have been wonderful if they had spent that 
18 to 20 months that they did reviewing their inflation policy and holding all those conferences and fed meets if they had done it on collateral. I wonder where we would be. That's a alternate you know, the universe. Thing about that if they had done that, they would have realized that that would have solved their inflation problem too. So it wasn't like it was completely off topic. They just don't realize it's on topic. Let's move on to part three of the show. On Christmas Eve in the late 1980s, John McClane, an off-duty New York City cop, dropped an Eastern European terrorist onto the hood of a sedan being piloted by LAPD officer Al Powell. Now, on May 3rd, 2021, an Atlanta Fed researcher dropped a blog post onto the hood of a sedan, a Brookings Institute sedan piloted by Ben Bernanke. Now, in the documentary that we all saw, 1988 documentary, we saw the self-satisfied McLean say, welcome to the party, pal. Is that what the Fed researcher said after he posted on the Atlanta website, Atlanta Fed website? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research, after I ask him if Die Hard is his favorite movie of all time. Is Die Hard my favorite movie of all time? No, but it is close to the top. <laughs> okay. Jeff. Who does not like Die Hard? I mean, it's, it's one of those Communists. classic movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the East German terrorists. That's right. Uh, Jeff, we're going to be talking about long-term interest rates. And when uh, academics talk about long-term interest rates, they don't look at them as a monolithic number. They look at them as a, as a number made up of parts, three parts. Tell us how the academic sees a long-term yield interest rate. They're decomposing the parts, as you said, uh, and it goes back to Irving Fisher in 1907, when he said, look, interest rates are you know, the sum of inflation expectations and real, uh, the expect changes in, in real interest rates. So changes in inflation expectations, as well as changes in real interest rates. We can, we can, we can parcel them up in different ways, and I like to think of it as more of um, inflation expectations and the expected future path of short-term rates, which is a proxy for real rates and things like that too. But academically, how do you do that? How do you how do you take a bond yield, the Treasury yield, and chop it up into pieces and put it into a model and figure out what the mathematically is going on in, in something so vast as the bond market? And the way it's been done is they come up with statistical models, factor models. Uh, affine models that say, well, we're going to we're going to program a bunch of numbers and a bunch of linear regressions of price factors, and we're going to come up with our own answers for what goes on and, and how can we break down a long-term bond yield. And usually, it's we have our our proxy for short-term interest rates and real rates, and then there's a remainder. We don't know what the remainder is. We just we come up with our proxy, we subtract it from the nominal yield, and there's there's a little bit left over. We'll call it a term premium, and we'll say, well, that must be the amount that, that the bond investor needs to be compensated for for holding a longer-term instrument. That's what we'll call it. But in reality, it's nothing more than a mathematical remainder. We, we model short-term rate expectations, inflation expectations, and then we, we have a little bit left over that we don't know what to do with. And that's that's how these term premiums come up with. That's how... Econometrics dices up bond yields and bond rates. Uh, Daniel Want down in Australia is a uh, macroeconomist, chief investment officer of a prerequisite capital. And uh, I remembered when I was reading this paper that a couple of years ago, he wrote a paper 
about long-term yields and bonds and inflation. And I'm just going to read a quote here from him. It's in the section, Conventional Academic Theory Regarding Bond Yields. Term premium is simply the reconciling item that makes an academic equation for bond yields work. Basically, term premium is short for we have no idea what else drives yields. Academics, central bankers, and market practitioners theorize about what the term premium could really be measuring, but in the majority of cases, whenever you hear someone talking boldly about term premium, they are usually just trying to sound intelligent, but in reality, just communicating to you their confusion as to what is actually happening with yields. He's such a nice guy, but this is pure fire. And now we're going to be transitioning to Bernanke, who is talking he loves about to talk about term premiums <laughs> and only talk. As I said, you know, I, we talk about the the studies for quantitative easing and how they most of the time they say, well, it doesn't really lower interest rates. So what does it do? And a lot of these studies trying to save face and trying to say that QE does something. What they say is it lowers term premiums, which is exactly this, as, as as you just said. It's exactly their way of saying we got nothing. We got to come up with something here to say QE is effective. Well, maybe it lowered term premiums. And really, what Ben Bernanke would say is, oh, no, term premiums, they're not just a mathematical remainder. They're significant. They're an indication of risk. And so if QE lowers term premiums, it doesn't do anything else. But even if it lowers term premiums, that's the Fed helping out because it, see, it makes the market see lower risk ahead, which is total garbage. It really is garbage. And he's absolutely right to point out that anybody that points to term premiums as any kind of significant analysis is total bunk. And it's an indication that they don't know what they're talking about. As we've said many, many times before, going back to Alan Greenspan's conundrum, who thinks that long-term bond yields are a series of one-year forwards, it's absolutely clear. Economists don't understand rates and bonds, which again, that's it's one of those things that sounds so ridiculous. It can't, I mean, it can't possibly be true, right? Central bankers don't know anything about interest rates. Isn't that all they do? But it's absolutely true. And when they bring up term premiums, they're basically opening their mouth and removing all doubt that they're fools. Jeff, I don't know if it was in this article, and the one we're talking about is called Global Not Term Premiums, What Low Yields Really Say, May 4th, 2021, Alhambra Investments. I don't know if it was in this article, but you had a great line this week where you wrote, uh, economists don't know anything about bonds, but they know enough to want to change the subject. It was some, I'm paraphrasing, but that was, that was great. Okay, let me read a little bit here from Bernanke, just so that we understand where the Atlanta Fed researcher is coming from. So this is in 2015, Bernanke. What about the decline in long-term yields since early 2014? Asks Bernanke. In the U.S. at least, that decline is somewhat surprising as economic fundamentals have recently seemed more consistent with rising, not falling long-term yields. By the process of elimination, with fundamentals stable or improving, much of the decline in yields over the past year must reflect a sharp drop in term premiums. 2014, 2015, 2016, uh, economic fundamentals were not improving. No, and they were. that was most evident and most clear. You can, under, you can sympathize a little bit with what Bernanke was saying. He said, you know, the U.S. doesn't look too bad. The fundamentals here are okay. Mm. But it was really it was getting bad elsewhere. And so I think what Bernanke said in other, you know, this was a four part blog post. I thought he said, well, yeah, 
it seems like it's getting dark in Europe and, and some of the emerging markets are having real struggles, but what does the hell does that have to do with the US? Because it's so closed. So his point was, you know, almost clean as dirty shirt slogan that US Treasury bond yields should not be, re if they are going lower, which they were, he reasoned that, well, that can't be economic fundamentals, therefore it must be this remainder. That's why he says process of elimination, it must be term premium. Because his view was the economic fundamentals applied only to the United States. Atlanta Fed, May 3rd, 2021. Is there a global factor in U.S. bond yields? By Nikolai, oh man, who printed this? It's so small. Nikolai Gospodinov. This is him dangling the, the Eastern European terrorists out the window. And here he is. He's about to drop it on the sedan from the Brookings Institute. Quote, but because the term premia are obtained as a residual component in the model, any misspecification of the factor structure that drives equilibrium interest rates by omitting a common global factor, for example, may result in erroneously attributing some fundamental movements to the term premia. The body is mangled on the hood of the car, yeah. Jeff. What does that mean? He's basically saying you got it all wrong, Ben. <laughs> you were completely wrong. No, and what the, the point of the article was that we, you should not and could, you really could not have ignored the fact that U.S. rates were moving in concert with global rates. That there's a synchronicity across global bond markets that defies and belies the idea that these are all just closed systems that are sparsely connected. What he was saying is, that, look, there's there's common global factors here. And so Ben Bernanke's analysis that the U.S. economy was improving might have been technically true, but also irrelevant because the entire global economy was not improving. And that could explain why U.S. Treasury yields were falling. But if you don't understand that, if you if you're if your factor models are not factoring this global economic situation into them, when you do your, your calculations and you add up that remainder of shrinking term premiums, you're attributing to term premiums, which is you know useless information, even more useless information. Hmm. You're giving you're giving yourself false meaning from a useless calculation. That's what he's saying is look, if you think that term premiums are shrinking because you omit this global factor, then you don't understand why interest rates are falling to begin with. And that's really the, you know the idea here is that okay, we have a global system. What makes it a global system? That's the next step in all this. Now that we understand what interest rates are possibly telling us, that maybe U.S. rates are low, and it doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. economy is bad at that particular moment in time. Maybe it tells us something more important, more fundamental about the entire global economic situation, which includes maybe the U.S. being the cleanest, dirty shirt. All right, I'm going to read another part, and I want the audience to hear. Welcome to the party, pal. Here it is, quote, from the researcher again. This observation raises the possibility that domestic bond yields, including those in the U.S. Treasury market, may be anchored by global economic developments, provision of global liquidity, and international markets arbitrage. A global economic system, just like how you were saying, Eurodollar system. The U.S. is not a locked uh, model, a global economy separate from the rest of the world. Yeah, it's not a closed system. I mean, what are the implications of that, though? Well, what it could be is, specifically to 2015 and 2016, it was that, okay, the U.S. is stable and improving. It's not that bad. And yes, it's bad outside, but that's the point. If it's bad outside, it's not going to be good in the United States for very long. 
because right. this is a synchronized system. And that's actually what happened. But people, many people probably don't even realize that how close we came to a recession, especially in late 2015. The U.S. was on the verge of a recession in 2015. It was not booming. In fact, the Federal Reserve admitted as much because they did that ridiculous rate hike, the first one in December 2015, and then took an entire year, the entire next year off until December 2016. Oh, is that right? I thought it was in 2014. Then 2015. Well, the first rate, they, they ended quantitative easing in December, December of 2014, expecting that the first rate hike would follow in about six months June, because yeah. it was a continuous policy of... of yeah. of, of uh, removing easy accommodation. And then instead, they had to wait till December of 2015. And then once they did the first rate hike in December of 2015, it sat there for an entire year as the loneliest rate hike in history. Yeah. <laughs> because the U.S. situation did not improve. It actually did the opposite. The U.S. economy became more like the rest of the global system, which is exactly what interest rates in the U.S. and outside the U.S. were trying to tell Ben Bernanke if he didn't have his term premiums to fall back on. So once you realize what's going on here, this term premium argument is nothing more than gobbledygook, and it's missing, in fact, this global factor, these models are all wrong, and therefore their calculations are gonna be all wrong, therefore the justifications are gonna be completely meaningless, which is exactly what we're seeing. And that's the parallel to today, right? The US economy, according to Warren Buffett, is red hot, but yet, what are treasury yields? What are interest rates around the world doing? They're not rising. So maybe the US economy is red hot. Let's assume that it is. What the bond market is saying is, okay, this one part of the global economy is doing pretty well, but what about all the rest of it? Not doing well, not doing red hot, not doing inflationary. And furthermore, our lesson from Ben Bernanke is that even if the economy of the US is doing well, balance of probabilities over time, it's going to look more like the rest of the economy than vice versa. Yeah, the quote that we read from Bernanke in 2025, the beginning, the part that you bolded was, by the process of elimination, therefore term premiums. And I just had to, I went to the uh, Britannica and I pulled up the Aristotle model of the universe and I was trying to figure out how did they explain the, the, the different planets, how they didn't quite fit into Aristotle's model. And it just sounds so similar. Aristotle's model of the universe had trouble explaining some planetary phenomena. So the most important solution to this problem was proposed by Claudius Ptolemy in the third century. He argued that planets move on two sets of circles, yeah. a deferent and an epicycle. This explained the retrograde motion while keeping the planets in their circular orbits around Earth. Where this did not fit, Ptolemy proposed an eccentric. An eccentric orbit had a center different from the Earth and accounted well for the changes in the planet's brightness. Ptolemy's last device was an equant. Eventually, the Ptolemaic system held ground for centuries until too many discrepancies cried for new solutions. And Jeff, that's how you end your article. You start listing all the discrepancies that have recently been ticked off, the global savings glut, that QE starves liquidity, that bond yields are only lowered by 50 basis points by QE, portfolio effects in Japan. And now this, here's another one, this researcher. Yeah, and it's... it's I'm a you know, very much like Aristotle and Ptolemaic astronomy that, you know, there are these 
they become too big to ignore, right? These discrepancies, these differences, these divergent, whatever you want to call them. Term premiums is a perfect example. It's a, it's a, you, it's such a clear way of, of trying to make sense of what you're just wrong about. We've got this wrong, but how do we not be wrong? And it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of enlightenment scientific approach, which is look, we base our theories on evidence, and when the evidence falsifies our theories, we change the theory to fit to match the evidence, not the other way around. We don't try to match the evidence to, tr to fit a theory because we we love the theory we came up with it, and or we're the we're the father of my, of American QE, which is really what I think motivates Bernanke most of all. I think he realized that these discrepancies are damning, and like like Jay Powell and his Treasury bill policy over the last 14 months, they know that they've got a lot of this wrong, but they're not ready to come clean on it. And so let's talk about term premiums and discuss about how ridiculous they are. You know, I just can't understand why there's nowhere in that model. There's nothing about collateral, nothing about collateral as to what, how treasuries are valued. So I was thinking, all right, well, what does Daniel say? about uh, how treasuries are really valued. What, are they, what kind of information do they really convey? And he says at the cyclical level, bond yields are driven by the following combination of drivers, inflation versus deflation expectations, sovereign credit risk premium, economic confidence versus the demand for collateral. Yes, thank you. And capital inflows versus outflows. That I makes would add sense. To that, I would add to that to the the Atlanta Fed's researchers' conclusions is that's part of the global factor. The global factor isn't just economic fundamentals; it's demand for collateral across the entire monetary system, which spans out a lot of it outside of the United States. So that's another global factor, a liquidity factor, a monetary factor that's directly incorporated into this 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 idea that this is not a closed system. This, the U.S. fundamentals are not the only driver of of underlying decompositions in U.S. Treasury yields. There's, there's a global factor, a global monetary, global economic factor that's far, far more meaningful. And if you don't factor it, then you're not doing a correct process of elimination because you, you don't even know what you haven't eliminated. Great show, Jeff. I will talk to you next week. Okay, Emil, take care. <laughs>